Good morning. We are almost done with Romans, um, so we're going to be in Romans 16, 17 through 23. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who, write, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is, to, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Aristus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Well, Paul is now closing out his letter to the, to the church in Rome. And uh, it's, uh, it's been cool. This is, we're going to have 44 sermons in this series. Um, almost certainly will probably be the longest uh, sermon series that we ever have. I hope that you've enjoyed it. I know I have as I've been able to preach it, study it, and also be a, a student and, and be in the, in the congregation as the, the word has been proclaimed over me. I've really enjoyed that. Uh, Paul has, uh, before, he's actually going to close out the letter with a praise. We'll, we'll hit there next week. But uh, the section that we're in today is the last thing that he says before he close out the letter, closes out the letter with, with praise. Uh, Paul's been using this letter to the church in Rome to lay out what the gospel is. He's been explaining what the gospel is. The gospel, uh, if you are, are new to the, our uh, gatherings here, it's all right. Welcome. Uh, what the gospel means is it means good news. It's what a, uh, a messenger would bring whenever he had news, for example, of a, of a battle and the, your king was off fighting this battle somewhere. Whenever there's a victory, he would run or, or ride very quickly to your, the village and he would proclaim the gospel, that evangelion. He would proclaim the good news of the victory that has, been, that has happened on your behalf. And Paul is laying out the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Sometimes we use the word gospel, and it's, it's a useful, great word, but it's only gospel, it's only good news if it's about Jesus. The gospel itself only has power as it proclaims to us and tells us the news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and is doing on our behalf. And what Paul is telling us through the whole book of Romans, the whole letter to the church in Rome is this this, the story of Jesus, the good news of what Jesus is and what he has done and what he is doing is that he has changed and is changing everything. That the story that Jesus, God, came to his creation, which was fallen, and is redeeming that creation through his perfect life and his substitutionary death and his resurrection again, that what he is doing and has done in his work on our behalf is changing absolutely everything. It changes how we as human beings relate to God. That's how he starts off the book. 
What Jesus has done and is doing changes how we relate to God and changes how we relate to or understand ourselves. We spend so much of our time and energy, right, trying to understand ourselves and trying to understand how I think and how I feel and what makes me who I am and how did my, uh, my parents and my upbringing affect who I am and how did this thing that happened to me and this thing that I did, how did these things affect me? How am I feeling right now? We spend so much time and energy trying to understand who we are and the gospel of Jesus Christ changes how we relate to ourselves. The gospel, Paul tells us, changes our destiny. For those of us who believe in the gospel, for those of us who are believers, who are Christians, it changes our destiny, where we are going. Look, I don't know where you're going in your life, and honestly, I don't know where I'm going. 20 years ago, I did not picture myself in this place, in this moment, and exactly where I am in life. I, there's so much of my life that I love, but I didn't picture it. I couldn't plan it. We have very little control over our destiny, except the beautiful story of the gospel is that by faith in Jesus Christ, your and my ultimate destiny is absolutely changed and absolutely secured. The gospel changes our destiny and it changes our very nature. Paul tells us that the gospel changes who we are. It doesn't change my personality or, or my intellectual capacity necessarily, but it changes my nature and the, the core of my being, the, the things about myself that need to be changed, the things about myself that, that, that are against God, it changes those very things that I have no ability to change on my own. It changes our destiny, our future, it changes our, our, our nature, and it changes not only how we relate to ourselves and to God, but it changes how we relate to other people around us. But now, before Paul is getting ready to close out this letter, before he's gonna praise Jesus for all these things that we've been talking about, which, by the way, if you're a Christian right now, here's a test to know whether you're a Christian or not, or whether your Christianity is actually real to you, is that whenever I was just talking about those effects of the gospel, the effect that that should be having in your soul is it should be stirring something in you of inner praise to God. There should be something in your spirit that says, yes, thank you, Jesus. There should be an inner prayer dialogue going on in your soul as I'm talking about the effects of the gospel that should, that should stir you and say, yes, thank you, Lord. And if you're sitting here today or watching online and, and as I was talking about those effects of the gospel and the, all the things that Jesus has done and is doing, what, what that means, it should be stirring that deep within your soul. And if it's not, if it's not, then there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between, if maybe you are not a believer, or there's some sort of disconnect that is happening in your soul that's keeping you from realizing and enjoying all that Jesus is. And that's, to kind of cheat ahead a little bit, that's kind of what Paul is warning about at this last warning. Before he praises, he gives a little warning. He says, watch out. Not just a little warning, it's actually a, a big warning. He says, watch out, because here's the truth. Because if it's true that the gospel changes everything, then it's also true that the ungospel, that's a, a randy word I just made up. I don't, it's not a word, but you can write it down. If the gospel changes everything, then the ungospel can spoil everything. If the gospel changes everything, then the ungospel or the anti-gospel or any other message other than the gospel that comes posing as the gospel can spoil everything. Why? Because what we believe matters. What we believe matters, and you know why? Because what we believe becomes what we do. 
What we believe matters because what we believe becomes what we do. And Paul is warning us in this passage what the ungospel does in a life and what the ungospel does in a church. Look at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the gospel that you have been taught. He says, avoid them. Paul starts out this passage, this section of of, uh, his closing to say, to put out a a warning. He says, I appeal to you. I, I earnestly appeal to you. I earnestly call for your attention, brothers. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the, go- to the gospel. He says, watch out for teachings that lead us away from the true gospel. That's what doctrine means, by the way. If you're reading this, and anytime you see the word doctrine, it really means teaching or teachings. The, the doctrine that he's talking about is the gospel. He spent, again, the whole letter laying out what that doctrine is. It's the bedrock truth that our faith as Christians are, is built upon. What is that gospel? Well, it's what I just laid out for you. It's summarized in the historic creeds of Christianity. The Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, that's That is a summarized version of what the gospel is, of the core doctrines or teachings of the church. You could spend literally a lifetime unpacking that truth. And Paul says it's very important to watch out for those who will come in and cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught to avoid those people. Doctrine matters because it shows us who God is, who man is, what our condition is, and how we're to be saved. That's why the gospel matters, why the doctrine that has been handed down to us matters. If any key doctrine, any of these key doctrines, that, that particularly that I was just uh, summarizing through the Apostles' Creed, any key doctrine, if it's altered or removed, then what's going to happen is it's going to lead us down a false path. Paul said to Timothy, In 2 Timothy, he said, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard, he says in verse 14, the good deposit that was entrusted to you. What Paul is telling us in this passage and even in this passage in 2 Timothy is that the, the doctrines of Christianity are delivered to us, or they are received by us. They're not made by us. We don't get to decide what is true and what is not true. Did you notice that in, in, the, in this passage? He, he, said, uh, he said, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Now, the doctrine that you get to make up now, the doctrine that you agree with or don't agree with, uh, Thomas Jefferson, for the good that he did, he also, ha- 
you know, had some bad parts about himself. One, of, one big one of which is he had a, a Bible that he had that he had the parts that he didn't agree with or couldn't understand erased from it. And it's easy to knock Thomas Jefferson for that, but we do that. A lot of people do that mentally. We think that we get to stand over the book or over God's word. And if I don't understand or I don't agree with this part, then I decide I'm just, it can't mean that or I don't want it to mean that or I'm just not gonna pay any attention to that. I reject it. And that's placing myself over, not just over the book, but over the word of God and not just over God's word, but if I place myself over God's word, I'm placing myself in authority over God himself. I'm saying, I get to decide what is true and what is not true. I am my own mini God. And I have more wisdom and more knowledge and more capacity to understand what is good and what is not good than anybody else around me and certainly not over some unseen God somewhere. The doctrines of the faith are handed down to us. They are delivered to us. They've been taught to us by Jesus through the apostles in God's word, in the Bible, to us. We receive it. We do not determine it. Whenever I stand before you guys or any person stands before you, whether they're on a podcast, whether they're on TV, no matter what title they have behind their name, no matter what education they have, no matter who says they are awesome or great, if the only authority that they should have before you is according to what the Bible says, not according to what we get to make up before you. I don't get to stand before you and make up my interpretation of what this says. I'm supposed to... uh, convey to you the truth that has been handed down to me and to you by Jesus through the Holy Spirit and the apostles. They are received, not made. And Paul says it's important because look at what he says. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Paul tells us that the doctrine, the false doctrines cause divisions. The false gospel that comes in, or false gospels, false good news that come in, cause divisions. It doesn't bring unity among the body. It doesn't bring unity among Christians. It causes division. And he says it also leads to godlessness. Cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Instead of love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, false doctrine, false truth creates, instead of love, it creates godlessness. False doctrines create obstacles for people to see Jesus. They can't get to the true word. It can't get to Jesus because these, uh, this false doctrine is raised up that caused them to trip on the way over to get to him. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verse three through seven, he said, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies slash Facebook disagreements, which promotes, that's, that's my little interpretation, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Listen to what Paul says the true doctrine should result in. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions slash Facebook discussions. This false doctrine, false teaching that pull us away from the true teaching of the faith, it, it, it pulls us away and it always leads to a dead end and it pulls in two different directions. It pulls in what we'll call irreligion or religion. This is how the false doctrine comes in or the false gospel comes in. False gospel or false doctrine either lead us to irreligion or to religion, but both of those are two paths to the same end. Religion, the basic message of religion is you, by your effort and by your work, can earn righteousness before God or before men, and you can be right by your own work or by your own merit, by your own effort in some way. That's what religion says. Irreligion says there is not a God, or if there is, he doesn't care, or if he, he is not good, or he is not powerful, and therefore, do whatever you want to do. Decide your own fate and decide your own path. But both of, those, both of those pulls pull us away from the true doctrine, the good news about Jesus Christ. Because the good news about Jesus says, comes with first bad news. No matter how bad you think you may be, you are far worse off than you ever thought that you were. You're far more sinful than you ever thought you were. The wrath of God is more real against you than you ever thought that it was. But in Christ, you are far more loved than you ever dared to dream. And you could not or would not do anything to earn righteousness before God. You could never do enough. But yet Christ has done it all for you. And the way that you are saved is by accepting the free gift of Jesus Christ. The, the sneaky way most of us in this room kind of identify the irreligious way, right? It's the prodigal son that runs away from home and squanders his father's inheritance on riotous living, the Bible says. In other words, down at the boulevard. It's the other son that's more sneaky that many of us in this room fall into. It's the path of religion that leads us away from the true doctrines of the faith. It's unorthodoxy that comes in and changes or alters the faith in some key way that comes in in a sneaky way that we're either trying to bend to culture or trying to bend to my own understanding and, it, and I change the, in my mind, in my soul, a core demand, a core teaching of the doctrine that's been handed down to us. And what happens is it always in some seemingly beginning small way begins to lower Jesus. It lowers Jesus's in his deity or lowers Jesus in his necessity of his sacrifice on our behalf. Maybe we're not as sinful as we thought we were. Whereas grandma said I was. That maybe Jesus wasn't God. Or maybe he wasn't the only God. Maybe he didn't really die because I can't understand how somebody could be raised again. There's no woman can get pregnant without being with a, a man that so 
that, that story couldn't be true. It must be something else. It must be teaching us some principle. And we, we alter and we change the faith in what seems to be like a little way in order to accommodate my, my own understanding or accommodate culture or accommodate the, what people want to hear around me or around us. And it seems like a little way, but where that always leads us, sort of like a, if you see a little crack in your windshield, your next, it's like a, just a little crack. Very easily, one day, it's gonna, you're going to have a cold day, there's going to be frost, and you're going to go out, and there's going to be a, a long crack in there. And that's what those little nicks in orthodoxy do. It always leads to Jesus and always splinters our faith. It always brings in obstacles. It always lowers Jesus in, in an attempt to try to be more appealing to my own mind or logic or the people around me. What it actually does is it lowers Jesus and it takes away the opportunity for them to see Jesus Christ in his true glory. It always raises man and lowers Christ. Another way that irreligion comes in the sneaky ways, maybe it's not unorthodoxy, maybe, man, hey, my orthodoxy is good, I'm all on the Apostles' Creed, I've got this thing. But another way that it comes in is called what we'll call defective orthodoxy. And that is, I believe all the right things. I can pass all the tests. I can recite the creed and agree with that. I can you know, check all the boxes. I know, I know what it is, but, but you have that one pet doctrine of yours. That one pet thing, that one, that, the one issue that you're always on, that, that you overemphasize to the detriment of everything else. And so every conversation somebody has with you is about this one, this one doctrine that you have. Maybe it's about predestination or or maybe it's about uh, the end times, or maybe it's about whatever your, your thing is that you can't get beyond, you can't, what you end up seeing is you end up dividing or dividing the people around you because this pet doctrine means more to you than unity flowing from a good conscience out of love. And you overemphasize this one or two doctrines so much that you get pulled away and your orthodoxy becomes a defective orthodoxy. And all of a sudden, there's divisions in the church. Not to say that these issues aren't important, what you believe about end times or predestination or any number of things, church government aren't important. They are important. The Bible teaches these things, but they aren't the core doctrine that have been handed down to us, that it's clear that we know that all Christians of all time everywhere believe. And you find yourself that you can't be around or in fellowship with someone who believes differently about this issue. Defective orthodoxy. Or there's what I think a lot of Christians fall into in the American church, and that is dead orthodoxy. And that is, uh, the author A.W. Tozer described it as sort of like this. He says, a lot of Christians live in momentary are a momentary atheists. And, and, and what that means is like, I know with my mind, I think about all that God has done in the past, and I think about what I hope he will do in the future, but in the present moment, he is absent from my life. In any real way, I'm not actually walking with the Lord. Like, God is real, but he isn't doing much today, is sort of what it feels like. He isn't doing much in my life. He isn't doing much in this moment. 
I can check all the right things. If you're giving me an orthodoxy test, I can check them all, the, all the boxes off perfectly fine. But there's no sense of life, of God's life. There's no sense of joy and peace and love that's going on in my life. And what the, the, the plot of the enemy through these false gospels, these false teachings, what they do is that they always lead us away from Jesus. It always dulls our appreciation for Jesus. It always dulls our worship for Jesus. It always dulls our love for him, our, our sense of his love for us, and therefore his love for the other people around me. When my love for others around me is cold, it's usually because my love or my understanding or appreciation of Christ's love is cold. He says, watch out not only for the ungospel, but watch out for those who teach the ungospel. Look at verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. Now it's interesting here because Paul kind of seems to contradict himself. Did you, did you pick up on that? He says, watch out for those who come in and teach these false gospels, these false doctrines, anything that, not what I have delivered to you, that cause obstacles and create divisions. But then he says, if anybody does these things, then you should divide from them. Isn't that kind of interesting? Watch out for those who cause divisions and obstacles. And if they do cause divisions and obstacles, then you should divide from them. Well, why would he say that? It seems to kind of be a, a contradiction. Here's why. In 1 Timothy, again, in chapter 6, verse 3 through 5, Paul says, if anyone teaches a doctrine, a different doctrine, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Hear that, the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words slash Facebook, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What Paul says is that there are those that are in our midst who will not only simply believe false doctrine or false truth or ungospel, but they teach those things. And he says that those false teachers sound super nice and super reasonable. False teachers are never the ones that hit you the wrong way. They're always the ones that seem like that person is incredibly persuasive and kind and man, it, they seem super cool. That's the team that I want to be on. And yet he says that the result of their teaching end up dividing the church, causing divisions and creating obstacles in front of Jesus. And he says, here's why. Because these false teachers aren't simply just mistaken. He says they are serving themselves and not the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? They serve 
They do not serve our Lord Christ, but rather their appetites, or your version may say, or their bellies. It's in there that they serve themselves and their basest desires. What you often find is that someone who teaches a false gospel or false truth, when you start to look behind the, when you start to look behind the, the door, uh, you see licentiousness. You see an abuse of money and an abuse of power. You often see sexual sin and sexual perversion. That those who are false teachers, we're all broken. If you see my life, you would see exactly how broken I am, how sinful I am. But false teachers say things that you want to hear, that we all want to hear, but yet they are doing so in order to serve themselves and their basis appetites and desires. And by the way, that's why one reason why so many people who are not Christians in America look on us with disdain. Because they see what they see is our most famous people who they can see are serving their own appetites and desires and not our Lord Christ. But how often do they see that not just in our pulpits and on our TV screens, but how often do they see that in our pews? How often do they see that in us? Us who not only listen to, but buy into a false gospel, an ungospel. And we live lives that serve ourselves, that don't lead to godliness. Paul says, watch out for them because they will deceive the naive. And it's important because they shipwreck themselves and their followers. He says, beware of false prophets. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Because here's the truth that we already said. What you believe determines what you do and how you do it. What you believe determines what you do and how you do it. False doctrine, false gospel, the ungospel produces godlessness and the true gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done produces godliness in us who believe it. Here's the, 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 the test that he is saying that even Jesus says here, you'll know them, you'll recognize them by their fruits, he says in Matthew 7. What is that fruit? It's the fruit of the spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It's not building a large church or being very persuasive or being really cool. He said they will bear fruit of the spirit, our lives, if we are believing the true gospel, it should be producing ever increasingly love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know what all that can be summarized in? Love and humility. The fruit of the spirit, what the lives of those of us who believe, who receive the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it should be resulting a life that's marked by love and humility. This is the acid test of Christianity. 
This is the acid test of Christian maturity. It's not how much of the Bible do you know, though knowing the Bible is incredibly important. It's not how many services you've been to in a row, though we would highly encourage that. It's not how many times you volunteer in the nursery, though Dale would love for you to do that. The mark of Christian maturity is are you, first of all, believing the received truth, the words of Jesus, and are you showing the fruit of the Spirit? In the, that means the ways of Jesus. Do you believe the words of Jesus? And are you living in the mountain in the ways of Jesus? Do you believe the truth that has been received and handed down to us? And then are you showing the fruit of the Spirit in your life? That's the acid test of Christianity. And that's why Paul says in verse 19, uh, he says, I'm thankful that your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice, rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Be wise in what is good and be innocent as to what is evil. Why? Because what Paul is saying is that this Christian life that we're living, this life that we're living today is not a kid's game. That the stakes in this life are big and they are eternal and they are great. There are difference between eternity with Christ in heaven and eternity separated from him in hell. The stakes are big. They have to do with Christ and God and his name and his glory and Satan's war against him. We don't live in neutral territory. We live in a place that's surrounded by darkness and there is an evil one that is against you and your soul and against Christ and his kingdom and he is actively, actively prowling around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. He is after you and your soul. He's after you and your family. He's after our church. He's after the church of Jesus Christ to destroy and defame Christ's name and to pull us away and shipwreck our souls and shipwreck our faith. That is the stakes that, are, that we're playing with. We're not warring against each other. We're warring against principalities and powers and rulers. Satan and his minions. And that's why Paul says, I want you to be innocent to evil and I want you to be wise as to what is good. What he's saying is, don't even play in the neighborhood of evil. Don't even play in the neighborhood of the ungospel. Don't walk those streets. Don't be around there because sleepiness comes in stealthily. The enemy is sly and he is powerful. You don't realize that you're being trapped until it's too late. Have you ever watched one of those, uh, those nature videos? And it's like showing this like, cute little bird and they've got trying to get you like emotionally hooked in with the life of this bird this little squirrel this little mouse whatever like this mouse is trying to you know raise her family and she's out looking for food and it shows her little babies back in the little burrow and and this one's named Annis and Anna and this one's name is George and she's caring for her little baby mice and look at her she's you know she's trying to get through this hard winter and you're like oh I love this little mouse and then this little mouse is like you know moving through the little, this little, uh, little underbrush, and then all of a sudden you see, but there's the snake, right? And it's like, oh, cute little mouse that we're now emotionally invested in has no idea that this snake is sneaking up on her, luring her in. Like, oh, the cute little mouse, no, no, get away. 
Get away, little mouse. Then all of a sudden, boom! It's done. Then you cry for this little mouse that is dead and her little baby. It's like, what's going to happen with George and Anna? The enemy doesn't pull us in by advertising, come in here. I want to shipwreck your soul. I want to divide your church. I want to cause your church to have no power because you have no unity, because you're not believing what the the truth has been passed down to you once and for all by the apostles. It comes in stealthily and sneakily. It feels warm and nice. You don't even realize you're being trapped until it's too late. The, the waters are calm and they're easing to your muscles. The music is pleasant and it's catchy and all the normal indicators say, this is right. You know, they say that whenever you're, you're freezing to death that all of a sudden you feel this warmth roll over you and you're just like, oh, I'm gonna go to sleep and you never wake up again. And that's how it comes. The message of the ungospel says, you are right. No one else sees what you see. It comes in and it says, no one values you enough. So let's pervert the gospel. The false gospel says the other side, whatever the political other side or the religious other side from you, they're, they're wrong, they've wronged you. And not only that, they are evil. The ungospel comes in and says, if Christianity was true, then your life, my life would look different. The ungospel comes in and says, if God was real and if he was good, then, then that thing wouldn't have happened to me. The false truth comes in and says, that old truth, that's outdated. It doesn't apply anymore. That was good for another generation, another time, but it's not good for us. And there are thousands of voices feeding those thoughts of yours in our mind on countless podcasts and scores of books, on social media feeds, on news channels. We have politicians, political parties, and way too many pulpits and way too many pews. And what Paul is saying is that they are there to serve themselves and that the stakes are between good and evil. But here's the truth. No matter how much more appealing the false gospels, the ungospels, no matter how much more appealing those ways sound, they're still ungospel because they aren't the truth and because only the good news, only the gospel is uniquely good. Only the gospel condemns evil as deeply as it does. It says each of us not only have done wrong, but we are wrong in the very core of our beings. And who can change that? That's what Paul says in Romans 1. But then only the gospel offers a salvation that is free, absolutely free, and completely unconditional. It's a free gift, he says. Only the gospel is as good as it proclaims to be. All the other ungospels offer disillusionment and disappointment. That's why the doctrine and our conduct and our vigilance matters so much because the gospel is uniquely good, it is uniquely true, and it alone 
pulls us from evil into good. It alone shows us who God is. It alone delivers us from ourselves and from sinfulness and from Satan. And that's why Paul closes out with as serious as all this is. That's why he closes out with an assurance. That's why he closes out with this really, really amazing news at the end, an assurance that tells us that it's not all up to us. Because again, the gospel is the best news. You hear what he said in verse 20? He said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Jesus has decisively bruised the head of Satan at, his, at the crucifixion and at his resurrection. He's decisively bruised the head of Satan at his cross and his resurrection. But now we are waiting for it. God to finish the deal by crushing him. Did you see what it said? Under our feet. We get the benefit of his great work. It's that now but not yet time that we live in now where his head has been bruised but he's going to be crushed under our feet in the future and that's where we live as the church today. We live in that now, but not yet. It's done, but yet it's gonna come to fruition one day. We live in this place of yet great power, but great anticipation of more power. Great love, but yet more love. Great peace and unity, but more peace and unity that's coming one day. And it's in that now and not yet that we observe the Lord's Supper together. We partake of this bread and this juice looking back at this, that meal that Jesus had with his disciples when he sat with them and he said, I t- partake of this meal and I will not do it again until I come in power. The next time we get to partake of that meal, not a foretaste meal, but that meal, Jesus Christ will be with us and Satan will be crushed and evil will be crushed and Jesus will reign and will be reigning with him. Amazing news. I don't know, maybe if you were a different congregation, you guys would be whooping and hollering and (laughs) swinging from from the basketball goal. Like, that's amazing news. No matter what has happened to you or what is happening now, stay true, stay vigilant, because the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And that's what we celebrate. This meal is a victory meal. It's not just a remembrance meal. It's a victory meal that we partake of with each other. And as we do so, we're going to sing some victory songs that celebrate that. My question as we part this morning is, do you have a seat reserved at that table? Do you have a seat reserved at that table? If you don't, today can be the day that you receive this gift of salvation that is free and unconditional, no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, no matter things that you have seen, things have been done to you. Flee to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ today. And if you're a believer in Christ, Flee to it again. You say, hey, my, my heart is kind of hard. I don't feel the joy of my salvation. Flee to him today. Flee to him today. Don't wait for your heart to feel better. 
Because it's not by your work. He will crush Satan under your feet, not you. It's not for you to crush your sinful habits. It's not for you to, to overcome your bad backgrounds. It's not for you to undo the things that you have done. He will do it. He has decisively already begun it at the cross and his resurrection, and he will complete it. Flee to him today. Fall upon your face today and say, God, help me in your mercy, deliver me. Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. Come, help me. My heart is dull. Jesus Christ, have mercy, come and help me. I've forgotten how sinful I was, and I've been trying to clean myself up. Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. I don't know what my future is going to hold I, because I, you don't know what is, all these things that have happened in my past. Flee to him and just fall upon him this morning. Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. And the God of peace, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Accept that by faith this morning. Father, we thank you our thanks could not be enough. We thank you, though, Lord. We thank you that no matter where we have gone, no matter what we have done, no matter what false gospels we have believed, no matter what ungospels, no matter how we have placed ourselves over your word and try to interpret things away, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, your gospel is the news that through Christ we have a free gift of grace. That we are loved more than we ever dared to dream. That we are more accepted than we ever hoped that we would be. And that you will crush Satan. And you will come again. And all the things about us that are wrong, all the things about us that are broken, all the things around about us that are sinful will be done away with. And we will celebrate. We'll celebrate for all eternity for that amazing news. In enjoyment. And you'll receive the glory for that because it's all of you and not of us. Father, let us know that this morning as we partake of communion together. Let's realize that as we sing of your tr the truths of your gospel together. Let us sense that as we worship Christ together, Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.